Hello and welcome to Natural Health with CNM, the College of Naturopathic Medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Sanchez. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Joe Pizzorno, one of the world's leading authorities on integrative medicine and naturopathic practices. Dr. Joe is going to be talking to us about toxins and the health complications and illnesses associated with toxin overload. He'll be explaining how to minimize our exposure to toxins, what happens when our detoxification capabilities become compromised, and how we can repair tissues and cells when they become damaged. Dr. Pizzorno is a transformational leader in medicine. As founding president of Bastia University in 1978, he coined the term science-based natural medicine, which set the foundation for Bastia to become the first accredited institution in this field anywhere in the world. A naturopathic physician, educator, researcher and expert spokesman, Dr. Joe is editor-in-chief of PubMed Index IMCJ, board chair of the Institute of Functional Medicine, founding board member of American Herbal Pharmacopeia and a member of the science boards for the Heck Foundation, Gateway for Cancer Research and Bioclinic Naturals. He was appointed by Presidents Clinton and Bush to two prestigious government commissions to advise the President and Congress on how to integrate natural medicine into the healthcare system. He is the author and co-author of six textbooks for doctors and seven consumer books, including his most recent book, The Toxin Solution. Hi, Dr. Joe. Welcome. Thank you for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for your kind introduction and a delight to chat with you today. Thank you. It's amazing. You've a fantastic bio there and lots and lots of experiences. I'm really excited to hear all your knowledge and expertise. Um, but now you've just become a CNN patron, which is wonderful news. And you're going to be creating a series of lectures and videos on toxins and detoxification, which will be incorporated into CNN's naturopathy diploma. So as a leading expert in all things toxins and detoxification, those lectures are going to be incredibly informative and inspiring. So um, it's going to be a very exciting time for the students learning from you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the kind uh, welcome. And, you know, UK has such dearness to my heart. I've had so many friends there over the years uh, helping to advance this medicine. I remember Leon Shetow, who played such yes. a huge world, huge role all over the world on physical medicine. And, you know, we've been good friends for, for so long. And his passing was so sad for me. Yes, I know. It's very sad. Um, well, our listeners are also in for a treat today because you're going to be sharing all your knowledge and expertise on how to reduce toxic load and detox safely. But before we get started on toxins, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and your career in natural medicine? <laughs> Don't know how long an answer you want. Uh, <laughs> I, I came to this field quite differently from most other people because most people I know come into this field because typically they or a family member was, were helped by somebody with some kind of condition, health condition that mm-hmm. conventional drug kinds of approach were not helpful for, and they got interested in that way. I, mine was totally from the science viewpoint. I was working in uh, medical research way back in 1970, and I was working at the University of Washington School of Medicine, Department of Rheumatology, I was working with MDs and PhDs trying to find drug cures for arthritis. And I loved mm-hmm. doing that work. And I was thinking that I would go off and get a PhD in the field. I had, had been in a PhD program at Cornell University. and turned out I didn't like the 
the topics after a year I left and got involved in medical research. Anyway, mm-hmm. so I was working along with medical research and you know really enjoying what I was doing. And then I was having dinner with my roommate from college, and with he and his wife. And his wife was telling me over dinner how she had suffered from rheumatoid arthritis since she was a teenager. She had what's called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And, uh, and she said, I just got cured. I said, what? You just got cured? I said, that's not possible. It's an incurable disease. I know it's incurable because <laughs> I've been working with these MDC and PhDs, not just in, in here in Seattle, but you know, we had collaborations with other sites across the country. So I said, so what happened? You know, what's your cure? She said, well, I went to an naturopathic doctor. My response was, what? What's that? <laughs> okay. I had a lot to learn. So, but, you know, being a curious person, I went to this naturopathic doctor. And I said, hey, so, doctor, what did you do for my friend? And he said, well, I detoxified her liver and taught her how and told her what vitamins and, and herbs to take and how to live healthfully. I said, wait, what does her liver have to do with her hands and her knees being swollen? So that started me on a journey. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, it got me interested, but I wasn't quite ready to move out of conventional medicine. But I was realizing, wait, well, there's other healthcare professionals besides medical doctors. I mean, at that point, I'd, I didn't know there were chiropractors, which was a large profession here in the U.S. So I started working along doing the research, and then um, I was helping a, an MD who was doing a postdoc at, at, our, at our research lab. And she was looking at a new drug for treating arthritis. You know, this is what I was doing, new drugs. So mm-hmm. this drug was for arthritis, and it was uh, and was being tested in the animal model. And at that point, the animal model being used for arthritis was a duck model because they had these ducks that are genetically bred to get rheumatoid arthritis, and they give them drugs to see if it helps help with it. So yeah. um, we got the, we got the, the, the uh, ducks in, and we went to the vivarium to check them out and make sure we got the right ducks and such, and we did. But while we were there in the vivarium, which is a terrible place to be if you're a vegetarian, uh, where you do research on animals, anyway, so we go in there, and we see these animals, these, these ducks in these tiny little cages. And the ducks look just miserable. Okay, now, yeah, you imagine. Might, you know, if you have, you might say, what, ducks you look miserable? Well, anybody who has pets... Well, no, if the pet's unhappy, you know about it. So yes. being a kind-hearted woman, which is you know, nice for your, for your doctor, she said, well, you know, we don't want to mistreat these animals, even though they're going to get arthritis. So she got there with her husband, and they uh, got an empty lab, and they made a little duck run, got some plywood, and put some sand down. And then they got a plastic swimming pool, put with water in it. And then rather than just give them the duck chow, they said, well, let's give them some fresh fruits and vegetables. So all of a sudden, the ducks went from, you know, moping to, you know, running around and quacking, being happy, and et cetera. So, okay, so fine. Now now we're waiting for them to get the room to arthritis that they always get. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, mm-hmm. and we're waiting. They never got the room to arthritis. Wow. So, so we had a going-away party for this doctor, and everybody was there consoling her because, oh, you poor, you know, you poor lady, you, you did all this work, and now your, your postdoc is a mess because <laughs> you can't test the drugs. <laughs> I was looking at them and saying, wait a minute, don't you don't you get it? You don't need the drugs if you don't get the disease. And here you have an example where we improved their nutrition and lifestyle and they did not get the genetically bred disease. And I thought to myself, Amazing. no, doesn't that shouldn't that apply to humans as well? And so um, at that point I was uh, the one of the best medical school libraries was actually at the University of Washington. 
So I started kind of going and looking in the medical school library, I started looking at things like nutrition and herbs and things like this. I was saying, wait a minute, look at all this research and it's being ignored. And I said, well, you know, I think I'll become an naturopathic doctor. <laughs> It's <laughs> a long answer, but it came from a very unusual place. I, I came at it from the point of science. Absolutely. And I really love that. That's an amazing story. And isn't it? You just, yeah, it's amazing how you, you're on one course of your life, right? I'm mm-hmm. going to go down this route. And then you've suddenly, you know, changed tracks and look where it's led you. I think that's absolutely yes. phenomenal. It, it, it led to a situation where I, I, I'll be in a, in a modest a bit here, but it changed the world. <laughs> really? Absolutely. Because natural medicine was, when I was in school, this is way back 1970, at least in the United States, well, actually, it's true in the UK as well, naturopathic medicine was dead and dying. It was just, it was just done. And somehow we managed to bring it back. You did. And I was actually reading your books when I was studying naturopathy. So, oh, uh, yes. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> uh, so, no, that's amazing. So, look, you know, you are the author of many best-selling books for both clinicians and the general public. And your hugely successful book, The Toxin Solution, is particularly eye-opening. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and how it came to fruition? Uh, yes, I would be delighted to. So as I got involved in natural medicine course, I became quite intrigued by its concepts. And also kind of the big um the initiative that I brought that had such a big impact was science-based natural medicine. So I was believing, you know, in science that if this body of knowledge had validity, we should be able to subject it to modern research. So I started started doing that. And and as I was doing the research, I became more and more uh, known. And then I was invited by a, uh, a very wealthy man in Canada to develop a natural medicine corporate wellness program for his 4,500 oil field workers. So he sent his Learjet down, his personal Learjet down to Seattle, fly me up to Calgary. And I sat down with him. I said, okay, Alan, his name's Alan Markin, by the way, and it's okay for me to talk about it because he's, he's very public about his work. I said, okay, okay Alan, I'm happy to um, do this, but I want to run lab tests on people because, you know, I want to be objective. I want to see what, what are people's nutritional deficiencies what are their excess toxins? What's their metabolisms and such? And as I was measuring these people, I was finding a lot of toxins, more, way more than I expected. And I started thinking to myself, well, if people have all these toxins, does it correlate with them having disease? So then I started looking at research on that and find out that looking at people in the top 20% body load of an environmental toxin, how does their disease load compared to people in the bottom 20% of a particular environmental toxin? I've seen mm-hmm. all these correlations. And look at people, and I particularly was interested in the area of diabetes. And I've seen that people with diabetes, they have way more toxins than people without diabetes. And then I started realizing that, um, well, actually, not rest. I asked, I asked a question. Can we look at the proportion of people with a toxin who have more disease, can we determine what percent of that disease is due to their environmental toxins? So I hired a couple of really bright bastard graduates to help me answer that question. So we went diving into the research. We found that indeed we could show that for diabetes, 90% of the diabetes epidemic appears to be due to environmental toxins. Wow. so when I was in naturopathic medical school, way back in, ni- in early 1970s, diabetes affected less than 1% of the population. 
Now it affects 10% of the population, and researchers are predicting that one-third of people are going to get diabetes. So then I realized, well, wait a minute. If the, this major disease, that's the most expensive disease we treat today, is due to environmental toxins, maybe the solution is not get people insulin, uh, but rather get the toxins out of their body. So that's why I wrote the toxin solution, because I started looking at when applying this way of thinking about it, I was having people with disease where my primary response approach was to basically get the toxic load down and their disease was going away. It was really quite remarkable. That is amazing. So I wrote the book to show people how do you get rid of disease by dealing with the causes. Absolutely. And it's a fantastic book. And I know you're going to be talking about lots of the things in the book today. So um, so now let's move on to toxins. So where do we find toxins, especially the environmental toxins? And what toxins should we be most worried about? So the sad news is toxins are everywhere. Okay. So what I mean by that is they're in the food we're eating, they're in the air we're breathing, they're in the water we're drinking, uh, they're in the healthy beauty aids, uh, household cleaning products, yard uh, yard chemicals. They're everywhere. We're being inundated. And one of the problems with the research is that most researchers just look at single toxins and they then develop a threshold. Well, you have to be above the threshold before it counts. So while that's really true, particularly for acute poisoning, there's also the issue that we're not only being exposed to one toxin at supposedly sub-threshold levels, we're now exposed to over 100 toxins at levels that increase risk for disease but aren't considered above the threshold. And we add one plus one, you don't get two, you get three. When we add one plus one plus one, you don't get three, you get 10 because these things add, add, to, add on to each other and cause progressively more and more damage. Yes. Definitely. So what are the ones that we should be most worried about? Like where is it in the ones in our home, like in our personal care products? Or, I mean, I know they're all around us, but what are the big ones people need to be aware of? That is an extremely good question. Okay. (laughs) And because it's actually surprisingly difficult to answer. When we think about toxins, they're kind of in two categories. And while we might say, was it a metal or a chemical, there's actually a better way of thinking about that. And that is, are they persistent or non-persistent? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, so a non-persistent toxin means that our bodies have detox systems that are able to get rid of them fairly easily. So some things, you, like bisphenol A, we might say, well, why worry about that? Because the half-life in the body, you know, the time it takes for us to get rid of half of it, is only, it's only a few days. So why worry about bisphenol A? Well, the problem is, Yes, we can get rid of it easily, but for constantly being exposed to it, well, we're, we're going to have high levels. Then we have the other type of toxin, and that is what are called the persistent toxins. So these are toxins which are either new to nature molecules or they're metals that we weren't exposed to as evolved as a species, so they're hard to get rid of. Some things are really hard to get rid of, and probably the worst of them is uh, cadmium. And cadmium mm-hmm. has a half-life in the kidneys of 16 years. So once wow. a person exposed to cadmium, lots of damage. Uh, mm-hmm. And then another one are the, um, the uh, PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls. Now, these were banned over 40 years ago from in, for industrial use in Western societies, but they have half-lives in humans of 3 to 20 years. So once again, to humans, they're almost impossible to get rid of. Very, very challenging. 
Yes, absolutely. So would the PCBs still be in the soil? Or where, where would people find those? So the worst source of PCBs right now is farmed fish. Okay. So we talk about fish being helpful for people, but the problem is you can't yeah. eat farmed fish because it's full of these environmental toxins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's probably that will surprise a lot of people as well. So yes, yeah, so. Good to, to, to point that out, absolutely. Okay, so what are some of the health complications and illnesses associated with toxin overload? Everything. Where do we start? <laughs> every, every nearest I can tell, every environmental toxin um, is, um, is is contributing to trouble. So. You, what I say to people is, yes, we should assess your body load, measure you. We objectively measure people's load of many of these toxins, or more easily, we can measure who are most toxic, uh, and then do everything you can to remove every possible toxin, because some of them are almost impossible to avoid to get, get rid of what you can get rid of. Right. So what yeah. does that mean? Well, it means, first off, only eating organically grown foods. It means, seriously, only eat organically grown foods. And if you eat fish, it should be a wild cost caught fish, small wild-caught fish. Uh, when you're uh, drinking water, uh, have your water tested. Uh, most people don't realize that a substantial portion of the water supplies, the public water supplies, are contaminated with arsenic. So I'm right now working on developing an environmental medicine course uh, for uh, Great Britain, and I'm in the process of looking at the levels of toxins in the air and the water and the food in Great Britain. And by the way, the bad news is that it's just as bad as the U.S., uh, the good news right. is that we can do something about it. But anyway, Great. so if there's toxins in your water, you've got to get a water purifier that get rid of those toxins. Health and beauty aids. Use health and beauty aids that don't have phthalates in them, don't have lead in them. Uh, anyway, you just go through and every every exposure we have, we can decrease we can decrease it. And the more the better. Absolutely. It's just sort of stripping it back and going a bit more natural. And when you sort of say to people, get a filter, you do need a very good quality filter, not just one of those jugs, basically. Yes, as, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so with the health and beauty, yeah, trying to go as less is more, basically, because mm. they all contain some sort of toxin or chemical. Yes. Um, so can you give us a little bit of an overview of um, detoxification, how the body gets rid of toxins and, you know, what happens uh, when somebody's body, you know, their detoxification capabilities become compromised? What's mm -hmm. going on there? There are, um, there, there are several ways the body gets rid of toxins, but you can kind of break them down to either excrete them or break them down. So if it's going to be a metal, well, you can't break down metals. You've got to excrete them. And so we have a lot of great mechanisms for excretion. One of the most common toxins people are exposed to turns out to be arsenic. Big surprise, but it's very, very common. And when mm -hmm. we look at the body load of arsenic, and I'm right now trying to find that in the UK. It's challenging. It's hard to get the data in the UK uh, than the US, simply because the US has, has more data. But we now know, looking at data in the US, that one-third of the population has arsenic levels known to induce disease in humans. So one strategy is to make sure you get rid of arsenic as quickly as possible. So first off, you've got to avoid it, but then also you have to make sure that your methylation is working properly. People have heard of homocysteine. Well, people mm -hmm. who elevate homocysteine levels means that they have trouble with methylation groups, and we need methylation groups to get rid of arsenic. So there's some things you can do to avoid, do exposure, avoid exposure, and then make sure your body's mechanisms get rid of it are working as effective as possible. But again, looking at those metals again, the only way to get rid of metals is either through the gut 
or through the urine or through sweat. Now, in the gut, we have great mechanisms to get rid of uh, metals, like mercury, for example. Every day we secrete about 1% of the body load of mercury into the gut. But the problem is we reabsorb 99% of what we just dumped into the gut. So I ask myself, why would our smart bodies go through all this metabolic work to get rid of this, of this toxin and then just reabsorb it again? Well, the answer is that as we evolved as a species, we had fiber in our diet, and that fiber in the diet then, then bound to those toxins to get them out of the body. So it's not just metals. That's the same thing with chemicals as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we had, we were consuming 100, 150 grams of fiber a day as we evolved the species. Now we're consuming 15 to 20 grams of fiber a day. So it's simply yep. not enough fiber there to get the job done. So anyway, that's excretion. To improve excretion, there's no substitute for increasing fiber in the diet. There's other things to do too, but the higher the fiber foods, the more you excrete these toxins. The other mechanism is chemical breakdown. So this is where typically we have chemicals, we have enzymes in the liver primarily that break down the chemical to get out of the, to make it into a less toxic molecule. And that's mm-hmm. what happens in the liver. Well, when the person's liver is not functioning properly, like from a deficiency of, of vitamins, or the person is being exposed to so many toxins, they're overloading the kidney's ability to, to get rid of them, now we're going to have troubles. Yeah. So anyway, so with that, um, it comes down to a good, healthy diet, rich in vitamins and minerals, is a way to make sure your, your liver is working the way it's supposed to. And then, of course, we can use some herbs and various strategies to even increase that as well. Yes. Now, and we'll go through some of those protocols in a, in a, in a little while to, to give people some ideas. So just going back to the arsenic, so obviously it's in the water, but what are Because I know rice and like things like rice milk and rice cakes, that rice is also a high source of arsenic, isn't it? It is. So it turns out that uh, if you rinse off the white rice very thoroughly uh, before the, uh, cooking it, you can actually get rid of a significant portion of the, of the arsenic in the rice. Oh, that's good to know. Okay, great. And what other sources? Where else would people be exposed to arsenic? Um, or is there any other foods that right. that is high levels of it? Yes. So there are three three primary sources of arsenic. Now there are many others, but the primary ones are number one is water. So mm-hmm. when you look at epidemiologically all around all around the world, uh, as arsenic levels in water supply increase, so does disease. So arsenic is by far water is by far the worst source. And it gets into the water from two mechanisms. Mechanism one is from the rock. So as we evolved as a species, we were regularly being exposed to arsenic because if we drank from water that happened to be coming from an area where there was rock in it that had arsenic in it, and arsenic was in the water. So we're actually good to get rid of arsenic, okay? But that's expecting us not to be exposed to it all the time. So that's, that's a factor. The other factor for arsenic in the water supply is industrial contamination. And uh, we've used arsenic a lot uh, in our industrialization. So, for example, up until recently, uh, wooden boats. Wooden boats would be um, painted with arsenical compounds. Uh, climbing toys for children, those wood climbing toys, well, they yes. preserve the woods by putting arsenical compounds into them. So there's right. a lot of this industrial contamination as, as well. I can't tell you off the top of my head what the ratio is between industrial contamination and natural contamination, but it but it's quite real. So anyway, so there's there's a situation situation with arsenic. Um, the other sources are rice, as you mentioned. And what's happened with rice is rice for some reason very efficiently absorbed arsenic. Uh, beans very efficiently absorb cadmium, and for some reason uh, rice very efficiently absorbs 
arsenic, maybe, maybe because rice is grown in water. And so if the water supply is contaminated with arsenic, the rice will absorb the arsenic. The third yeah. major source turns out to be chicken. So arsenical compounds up until recently were the standard of care for raising chickens because the arsenical compounds will help kill off the parasites in the chickens and make them plump up and have more meat so they, they would sell for more, for more money. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's covered a lot of territory there. <laughs> yes, definitely. So, um, but obviously in organic chickens, that wouldn't be the case? Well, um, that should be the case, yes. We have right. to make sure the organic chickens were raised in an area where there wasn't much contamination. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. So much to so much to learn and know. It's uh, quite scary. You just don't know what you're putting in your mouth sometimes, do you? Trust me, you you quickly get paranoid as you look into this research. <laughs> I mean, really. Uh, my wife and I, Laura, is becoming ever more extreme in how we uh, avoid toxins in our lives because we just keep seeing more and more data. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Yes, it's really, really scary. So you've touched on a few things. So what other ways can we minimize our exposure to toxins? So we've talked about, yes, the water filter, avoiding certain foods, going organic, you know, be careful what you're sort of putting on your skin and what you're cleaning your house with. Is there anything else, other ways that we can avoid or minimize our exposure? Well, we can't avoid it, but minimize our exposure to toxins? Uh, yes. Another one would be uh, air filters in the house. So depending upon where a person lives, the, the data on this is just stunning. So, for example, if you look at a major highway, it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be a, a freeway, but just a major highway that has you know, regular uh, diesel trucks uh, going down it. If you look at the risk of heart attacks, people within, do the math here, 15 meters uh, have about 50% increased risk of heart attacks. Okay, People within oh, wow. 100 meters have a 20% increased risk of heart attacks. And why is that? Well, as you see that diesel going down the road and you see it come out that blue and black smoke, you think, well, it can't be good for you. Well, it's not good for us. It's high in something called PAHs, or polyaromatic hydrocarbons. And these polyaromatic hydrocarbons um, are on particulate matter called uh, PM, and PM 2.5, I know it's kind of technical, but that's the size of the particulate matter. When it gets be below 2.5 micron, it bypasses the protective mechanisms in the upper respiratory tract, what are called the little cilia. It bypasses them and, and penetrates directly into, into the body through the lungs. Animal research shows that within an hour, when they're exposed to particulate matter with these pHs on them, that particulate matter gets distributed throughout the body, and within three hours, it's found in the brain. It actually gets across the blood-brain barrier. Why is that wow. problematic? Well, these pHs, these polyaromatic hydrocarbons, are immensely damaging to the heart, and they're highly carcinogenic. So what's happened is people are getting constantly exposed to these things uh, when they live near uh, a highway, or if they live in a city, or if they smoke, or if they have a barbecue in the background, and in the backyard, and they're barbecuing their food, you smell that smoke. Okay, So all those things dramatically increase risk of not just heart attacks, but cancer and other disease as well. So it's important for people, if they are having exposure in the air, they need to get a filter in their house. There's two kinds of filters. You can have a HEPA filter to filter specific rooms. But what I recommend is if they have forced air heating, they want to put a filter in their forced air heating and run it all the time. So we have we have what's called a MERV-16 rated filter. We want at least a MERV-12. So MERV-16 rated filter means that it'll clear 99% of 
of all the crap in the air uh, on each pass through the air filter. So we okay. did this in our own house, and it was remarkable what we found happened. So we, um, you know, uh, we had unfortunately uh, a couple of years ago there, and actually this year it happened as well. There were a bunch of forest fires in this area, and the particular forest fires that were in Canada, just north of us. Uh, during the summer, when it's really nice, you get all this beautiful clean air coming from the Arctic, uh, and it, those cold air blows flows from north into the Seattle area, and it's really clear days and beautiful skies. But unfortunately, it was also blowing in smoke. So we mm-hmm. were running our filter, and inside the house, it was fine. Step out through the door, and it was smoking. But then we had a couple other ex- experiences. One is we have uh, a refrigerator. You know, works hard, and every year we we have to clean out the uh, coils because it can get full of dust. Well, when we cleared out the coils, uh, the next time there was no dust in the coils. It was really quite remarkable. Oh, wow. So we, we see these these clear examples of how doing this is very very effective. Absolutely. So with a MERV 16 rating, so would that be like a standard? Is that just a US thing? Or would that be standard across the world that people would need to look for that kind of filter? Um, I, I will need to figure that out for Great Britain, what the number is there. But, but what is MERV 16 means you get 99% clearance uh, with a very small reduction in, in airflow. That's oh, why okay. it works so well. Great. Okay. And yes, because I think, because I know in sort of countries where people have got those air con units and in the UK, we don't really, it's more radiators and things. So I think mm-hmm. probably something they'd have to get installed in it, like in each room, I imagine. I yeah, that's, that's where you use the HEPA filters. HEPA filters are standalone and they'll clean it out very well. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's good. Really great to know. Excellent. Okay. So, so how can we detox in a safe way? What protocols would you recommend? Um, and is there anything people um, need to be aware of when they're detoxing or trying to do it themselves? Uh, thanks for asking that question. A lot of people go into this kind of this chronic uh, detox program and that's mm-hmm. not the way to do it. Okay. No. The way to do it is first off, avoid the toxins. There's, there's, there's no alternative to avoid the toxins, you've got to avoid the toxins. But then once you avoid the toxins, then you want to do everything you can to facilitate the body's detox systems. Number one is fiber. Uh, I recommend everybody take at least 15 grams of additional fiber every day. Now don't do that all at once because your body has to adapt to it. So you do like um, five grams of fiber. Uh, three th- uh, so do like one and a half grams of fiber three times a day, do that for a few days, drink plenty of fluids, then slowly increase it to start taking five grams of fiber uh, three times a day. That'll help a lot. The as next, in a supplement, Dr. Joe? Sorry, yes, is that a, supplement. a yeah. supplement? Yeah. Supplement. And, you know, so uh, flaxseed, uh, rice bran fiber, slow, slow and arsenic. I don't recommend wheat bran fiber because too many people react to wheat. Pectin, things like this. So all these natural fibers. Mm-hmm. Great. Then the next thing we want to do is we want to increase our production of glutathione. It turns out that glutathione is the most important antioxidant in the body, but also plays a huge role in detoxification. So glutathione, for example, will bind directly to mercury to get out of the body. But most importantly is when we're getting rid of all these chemicals we're being exposed to, glutathione both protects the body from the detoxification process, because detoxification actually releases free radicals, but also glutathione then binds to uh, as part of the process of binding to these toxins after being detoxified. So, for example, paracetamol, you know, over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drug that people use, 
Well, it turns out that, by the way, it's an analgesic, it's not actually an anti-inflammatory. It's actually pro-inflammatory, which most people don't realize. But, anyway, uh, but it's very, very commonly used because it's a nice analgesic, you know, decreases the pain. Well, it depletes glutathione. And people mm-hmm. end up in the emergency room with kidney failure, for liver failure, when they overdose with the uh, paracetamol. So glutathione plays the critical role in detoxifying that chemical like many other chemicals. There are a number of ways to increase glutathione, and the most effective is with N-acetylcysteine. So NAC for short, 500 milligrams once a day will increase the amount of glutathione in the body by about 15%. And if you do it twice a day, you increase the amount of glutathione by about uh, 30%. So one of the standard things I recommend to people is to take NAC on a regular basis. Great. And that would that comes in like a supplement formula, like a powder, doesn't it, normally? Yeah, it's, it's, typically it's a, it's, a, it's a capsule. It's easy to get. Yeah. Great. Okay. So increase our fiber and NAC. Yes. Brilliant. Okay. Um, and, and obviously go the organic diet. Anything, any other supplements that you recommend or new, specific nutrients people would need? So at that point, um, the next most important nutrients that are commonly deficient are going to be the B vitamins. Now, there is now there is one uh, gender difference here, and that is um, women, uh, as we all know, uh, during their um, menstruating years, are more likely to be iron deficient. It turns out that the key enzymes in the liver, <clears throat> called the saccharine P450s, are based on heme. So they've got to, you have to have iron. So women deficient in iron are more likely to have a toxic reaction. So you've got to deal with that as well. Okay, so they would need to go to and get a blood test to check their iron levels. Is that what they would yes. need to do? And women yeah. must be, make sure they, got, they have really good quality iron levels. Otherwise, they're more susceptible to damage. Yeah. Okay. And anything else people could do for detoxing? Oh, I could keep talking, but those are the most important ones. (laughs) Those are the most important ones. Okay, brilliant. So if someone has experienced um, some cell or tissue damage as a result of toxins, what can they do naturopathically to heal and repair the body? Something I've learned, (laughs) I've been involved in medicine now for literally over half a century. There's something that I've becoming more and more cognizant of, and that is it takes time for the body to heal. Mm-hmm. And people become impatient because we're used to now, oh, my, I have a joint inflammation, I'm hurt, well, I'll take aspirin, you know, within an hour, I'm feeling better. So people are expecting to feel better quickly. But here's the issue when we're looking at detoxification. First, you have to identify what toxin people have. Then you've got to get the toxin, got to be stopped being exposed to the toxin. Then you got to get the toxin out of the body. Then you've got to regenerate the enzymes that are poisoned by that toxin so that they now can start functioning properly, and then the enzyme can fix the body. So with mm-hmm. drugs, we expect results within hours to days. Uh, with herbs, well, they could be, be faster because some herbs have drug-like effects. So we get results within days to weeks. We use nutritional medicine. Well, it takes a while to get the nutrients into, into the body. So you get results within weeks to months. But when you do detoxification, it takes months to years to get the full benefit. So just as you've got years of exposure causing damage, it's going to take time to for the body to heal. But if you do what I just said, avoid the toxins, uh, make sure the nutrition is in good shape, get the toxins out as quickly as effectively as possible, the body will regenerate. Now at that point, you then have to look at, well, what is the specific damage a person is experiencing before you can then say, well, what is the optimal strategy for the person? Yes, absolutely. 
And I think that's a key point because I think people do expect results, as you say, in a couple of days. But, you know, it's taken years for this damage to occur. And yeah. it, as you say, it's going to take years for the body to fully heal and repair. And, uh, yeah. yes, it's all doing it slowly. And that's the thing. You don't want to avoid those kind of doing things too quickly and the body goes into like a healing crisis and people feel 10 times worse. So mm. I think with anything you've best to do it under the guidance of a practitioner when you're yes. sort of doing these detoxes for sure and, and patience patience is really important in this situation absolutely absolutely all takes time <laughs> well is there anything else you wanted to share just on the detoxing just before we finish up is there any other yeah, uh, yes i do want to share something so my wife and i are in our early 70s and we have now noticed that so many of our family and friends in our age group are either dead, have major debilitating disease, or just done with life. And mm-hmm. yet, Laura and I live a very full life. Um, we, uh, we motorcycle tour literally all over the world. And we, have, we, have, um, we, don't, we don't have any significant disease. And we work long hours. And we play long hours, okay? <laughs> and I'm saying to people, you know, it makes a difference. How you live your life has a huge has a huge effect. And a lot of young people don't realize that. Yes, while you're young, you can, you know, drink all night and party, and you know, you'll you'll feel okay the next day. You might have might have a you know, little hangover, but you'll get over it. But the problem is, you're doing damage to the body, and it accumulates yeah. over time. And so, living life healthily starts day one, if at all possible. But no matter where a person is in their lifespan, they can always start living more healthily. And the body will regenerate. And people may say, well, you know, how about first with dementia? You know, that, that's done, aren't they? Well, the body actually regenerates 1% of the brain every year. So even people who are experiencing dementia, if you stop the damage and provide the nutrients necessary, the body will, will regenerate. When I say stop the damage, so it turns out that many of these chemicals we're being exposed to are neurotoxins. And some of the chemicals actually block the mechanisms in the brain for regeneration. So when you detoxify, you may not necessarily say, ah, that'll help the specific disease. But what it will do is everything in your body starts working better. And things we didn't think were reversible, like dementia, now have a chance to be reversed. I love that. I, and I 100% believe it as well. You know, we do, our bodies have this innate ability to heal and repair. And that's it. I think sometimes people think when they get to a certain age, oh, there's just no, there's no point. I'm too old for all of that. But as you say, you know, you're living a very, you and your wife are living a very full life. And um, yes, living proof that it, it can happen. And, you, you know, yes. yeah, and I absolutely love that. So everyone needs to go and buy the toxin solution so that they can be more informed and uh, yeah, know how to start sort of uh, making these changes. Uh, yes. And thank you for mentioning my, my toxin solution because I lay out in there in very friend, uh, consumer friendly language, how to live a toxin free life. And we can, we can do it. It's just a matter of choosing to, to do it. Absolutely. No, that's been absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Joe. It's been some really great information there. And I know that'll be very eye-opening for a lot of people. Lots of uh, things to, for people to go and research and have a look at your book and start making some changes for sure. Yes, please. <laughs> Thanks for the interview today. Well, that's all we've got time for today. 
Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Dr. Pizzorno for sharing his wealth of knowledge with us. You can find all the information discussed today and more about Dr. Pizzorno in the show notes on the CNN podcast website at www.cnnpodcast.com. And if you're interested in learning more about nutrition, herbal medicine, or naturopathy, check out CNN's range of short courses and the diploma courses. We have a series of open events coming up and you can find all the details on the CNN website at www.naturopathy-uk.com. Join us again next week when I talk to nutritional therapist and hormone expert Lorna Driver-Davies about perimenopause. Lorna will be discussing factors that exacerbate menopause symptoms and what can be done naturopathically to support the woman's body as she approaches menopause. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe through your favourite podcatcher so you don't miss any future episodes. While you're there, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review as this helps us when creating new content.